Hi, and welcome to the fourth episode of Talk About Theories. I'm your host, Gabrielle Jackson. So I know I've been gone for a couple weeks, but I've been getting some necessary work done for grad school. And let me just say, working full-time and going to school full-time is no easy feat. But I got it all done, and I'm back with your information on Chapter 4. This week, we're going to explore the message of the communication and the importance of it. So last week, we left off discussing Chapter 3's The Communicator. We identified the term communicator as being the indicator or the person delivering content. Our authors, Foss, Little John, and Eitzel, identified this week's topic, the message, as being the heart of the communication. And within that heart lies three basic concepts, semiotics, interpretations, and production use and strategy. According to the author, semiotics is the study of signs, symbols, and significations. It's based off of how meaning comes to be created. At the core of semiotics is the triad or triangle of meaning, which means the relationship among three things, the object, the person, and the symbol or sign. When I thought of this, I kind of pictured a rose. I pictured the rose as being the object, the person who is giving the rose as being the interpreter, and then the sign or symbol being the meaning that stood for that rose and how that person was trying to interpret that rose to the other person. So basically, if I have a rose and I wanted to give that rose to my, my boyfriend, I would basically be trying to pass along the love that I have for my boyfriend or the passion that I have along for my boyfriend. Now, typically, my boyfriend is not going to accept a rose from me, but... It's the thought that counts. Two theories discussed in this section are structural linguistics and nonverbal communication. The first of the two, structural linguistics, was created by Ferdinand Saussure, and he defines his theory as the study of language is a study of lang and parole how words and systems come to constitute meaning. And basically, he what he's really trying to say is that a person only knows this world that they live in by the language that they use. It's kind of a roadmap for their reality, but it only only their reality lies within the signs and symbols that they've already come to understand. So if there's something in this world that you represent for another thing, that's all that you know. You don't know it as anything else. You can't understand it as anything else. Uh, one thing that the book actually says, and I found it to be really interesting, and, you know, Little John and Foss and Azizel really say is that the relationship that exists between a sign and what it signifies is conventional. We collectively agree to its meaning. So it can be interpreted any type of way, but... At the end of the day, we all kind of come to an agreement that it definitely means something. I thought that was pretty interesting to say because I think of that all the time. There are certain things that I think mean one thing when someone else might mean another. The same rules apply for nonverbal communication. 
It was created by Paul Aikman and Wallace Friesman, and they define their theory as the study of the system of behaviors and interactions that convey meaning outside of the verbal realm. Now, five elements that they discuss within nonverbal communication that supports it are repetition, substitution, complementation, contradiction, and emphasis. When I first read those elements, I found it really funny. I had to think of the things that I usually do. And I have to agree, I do just about all five of those nonverbal communications within a conversation with someone else. I've been known, I'm known to do something repeatedly, like tap my fingers while I'm listening to someone if I don't always agree with them, which that goes on to be a contradiction move. Um, I always will substitute a head nod, like, yeah, like I'm listening when I don't want to say anything at all because I feel like everyone understands when you're head nodding at someone within a conversation, it's like, oh, yeah, girl, I get it, I get it, I get it. And then I could contradict myself when I say I agree with someone or, oh, my gosh, I'm so drawn into this conversation. Yeah, I'm rolling my eyes, I'm looking elsewhere, or I say... Or I just look surprised within the entire conversation when I'm really not surprised at anything that this person is telling me. Or I'll make my eyes really poppy, the emphasis that I'm like shocked or I'm really intrigued about what's going on. And I think that everybody has their own little quirks and things like that. Um, it's it's natural. It's, it's something that happens when you're speaking or not really speaking, but non-verbally speaking <laughs> but it's something that we do just to show that you know we're engaged in this conversation that we're having and we don't have to use words we can use our body we can use things around us to kind of just sum up everything that we want to say without really saying it So now we find ourselves moving along into the second basic aspect of the message, which is interpretation. And interpretation had a couple of different theories that fell underneath its belt. Those include phenomenology, distanciation, language and gender, social construction, constructionism. And out of the, I only found a couple that I kind of related more to or had more of an opinion of. So I'm going to go ahead and talk about those. Really, the ones that kind of stood out to me the most were language and gender and distanciation. Okay, so if you're following along in the book, I'm just going to keep moving chronologically throughout the book. So I'm going to start off with distanciation. And this theory was created by Paul Ricoeur. And I hope that I'm saying his name right. I hate when I pronounce people's names wrong. So, Paul, if you're out here listening, please bear with me. I hope I'm saying record right and I pronounce your name correctly. But in the text, the theory basically means that the text itself always speaks to us one way, but it's the job of the interpreter to figure it out and explain what's being said as well. So a lot of times we'll find that we might have something that says one thing, but it's being interpreted as a totally different meaning than what the original intention is. Now, in the book, uh, the theory uses Mozart's Jupiter Symphony, and it was a great um, example for me, but 
right now I'm actually taking a visual rhetoric class and we're always talking about how we can have one object or one visual rhetoric that stands for one thing that can mean another. I know one of the biggest topics that we have been talking about is the idea of Colin Kaepernick kneeling and how some people feel that because he's kneeling for the um, national anthem, it's a sign of disrespect. Whereas in his mind, he's kneeling to show and protest against social injustice against African-Americans. You know, it's this fine line of how people interpreted a meaning of a song. And it's funny because it's a song. It, you should interpret it any kind of way you want. I saw the same thing and I realized the same thing about um, I'm working on a project about which really talks about the Obama Hope campaign. And people saw this campaign of Obama, you know, depicted in this red, white, and blue, and he's staring up at the sky, and, you know, it means hope. And people take on to that word hope, and they're like, okay, I believe that this can happen. I believe that this man could be the first African-American to be president of the United States. I believe that, you know, anything is possible. Anything can happen if we achieve it. Anything, you know, can be done. Whereas other people didn't see it that way. Other people saw it as, oh, this is just a regular poster. This is just, you know, a way that, you know, Democrats can get back into office. So distanciation for me is all about really interpretation. I think it hit the nail on the head when it talked about that. It deals with, you know, it can deal with different speeches. It can deal with songs. It can deal with images. It can really deal with anything. But I feel like at the end of the day, Whoever is interpreting that message has to be able to explain that message outright to the next person or everything that you believe gets misconstrued. And I know I kind of jumped ahead of myself when I started, you know, discussing Spanish, Spanish speaking words and, you know, um, the, those type of tenses that you use a masculine tense or a female tense. You know, I really jumped ahead of myself, but it's true. It really is true when you think about these marginalized groups that are being placed on you. For instance, if you think of certain professions, you think of a lawyer or you think of a doctor, you know, you think, oh, that's a man's job. But when you think of like a teacher or a nurse, then you're like, oh, that's a woman's job. Well, why is that? Because I know so many women who are going into the practice of becoming lawyers and doctors. And there are several men that we see, you know, not only in reality, but on television or any of these things that are also teachers and nurses. You don't really have to place a role on it. Anyone can be anything that they want. Even the same way with, you know, news anchors or producers or any of those things like that. Now, I work in my job professionally and things like that. You know, typically when I see, you know, people anchoring the news if you look at hard news you're always thinking of you know there's this man or for me when I work at NBC I think of oh when I think of hard news I'm thinking of Lester Holt if I'm thinking of soft news or entertainment I'm thinking of the Today Show with Hoda and Kathy Lee because it's more soft it's it's not as you know it's not as direct it's you know it's more engaging it, it calms me down like when I think of I think of unwinding. So I think of Hoda and Kathy Lee with their wine glasses and, you know, they're talking to celebrities and things like that. But then when I'm thinking of total destruction or Hurricane Michael, well, where's Lester Holt? Let's bring him to the chair. 
And it's like, well, wait, why can't it be Savannah Guthrie anchoring the news and I think the same way? Why can't Lester have a glass of wine and sit down and discuss the newest movies out with Kevin Hart or any of these people that are out here with movies? You know, we can't define our language based off of gender roles that we have predetermined that are just simply not true and are barbaric these days. Okay, so moving right along, we're going to start discussing language and gender. And boy, do I have so much to say about this theory. But I'm going to condense it, I promise. I can't hold you guys for so long. I know I pride myself on staying short and sweet. But this, it just it just makes me just relive all of my childhood and everything I was taught. And I'm just like, what the heck? Are you serious? But it's created by Cherish Cramoray. And she states that linguistic structures privilege certain constructions of gender and power that silence women and other marginalized groups. So when I first read it, I was like, hmm, interesting. I never thought about that. But if you ever paid attention and if you're like me and you took Spanish class, you understand that there are masculine words and feminine words. And I never really understood why there was a difference between words. Why did a word have to be masculine? Why did it have to, a word to be feminine? But it's true. It, it, if you look at the certain things that we talk about, you think of like the idea of Mr., Mrs., or Miss. And it's like, why do we have to, you know, be so direct when we're talking about this? Like, when you say Mr., you don't think of, you know, oh, if this guy's single or, you know, if he has a wife or, you know, if you're talking about him, he seems very prestigious and, you know, he's, you know, he's made it to a certain level and everything like that. But when you think of the word miss and missus, it's like you only think of a person, a woman being grand is if she has missus, M-R-S. But when you say miss, it's like, oh, you think of a little girl. You think, you know, she doesn't have, you know, she's still single. You know, she's by herself. She hasn't really made her mark or any of those things like that. And I found it to be so strange because, you know, Cramoray, and I believe what she said, she calls it a man-made language because it embodies the perspective of the masculine more than the feminine. And it's not just, this isn't the one thing that happens just with masculine and feminine words. It's not just a whole gender thing. It happens in a lot of different groups as well. Okay, so switching gears because I'm telling you guys, I can really stay on the subject of language and gender theory for as long as possible. But we're going to go ahead and move into production, use, and strategy. So one of the biggest theories that stuck out for me in that section was coordinated management theory. And I know we had a couple different ones. We had speech act theory. We had theory of identification message design logic, compliance gaining, politeness theory, and invitational rhetoric. But I feel like coordinated management theory, um, coordinated management of meaning theory stuck out the most because I feel like that happens so much in my adult life. Like just thinking of my day of adulting, and I know that's not a word, but it is a word. Um, I just think of how many times 
the scenario that they use within the theory happens on a day-to-day basis, whether it's in a school setting, whether it's in a workplace setting, regardless, it happens all the time, whether we notice it or not. So let me just go ahead and tell you what it is. It, the definition of it, as described by the book, is communication involves assigning meaning and coordinating actions with others using constitutive and regulative rules. So it was created by Barnett Pierce and Vernon Corin. And in the actual theory, they use the they use the example of you're at work and you get called in for a meeting with your boss and you're getting this can you're getting this feedback. Now, you can take it one or two ways. You can take it as being helpful and you see it as, you know, your manager or your boss is trying to really help you grow. They're giving you constructive criticism. They, you know, they want you to take all these little things that are not necessarily working for you and your abilities at this moment. And they want you to tweak them and to grow. Or you can take it as being, you know, they're being negative towards you. They want you to fail. They don't want you to succeed. They can't see anything that you're doing right. Just everything that you're doing wrong. And it's, you know, really making you feel a certain way internally. So as I said earlier, it's all about constructive rules and regulative rules. So when the book defines constructive rules as essentially being that the communicator interprets or understands an event or a message. So they use it to, you know, it counts as, you know, it can count as being negative. It can count as being, you know, pro- I mean, positive. It can count as your own self-image of how you view yourself. So if you have a negative outlook on yourself, you're going to take it as being like an oppressive act. You're going to take it as it being, you know, as they're trying to oppress you and take you down. And, you know, they don't want you to grow or to build. They're just trying to, you know, they're basically trying to just take you out and this is their way of doing it by t- giving you all the negative feedback possible or you can take it as being you know relative and you can take it as someone's trying to you know trying to be accommodating to you know to your feelings but trying to let you know hey listen I'm telling you these things because I want you to get better I want you to succeed I want you to grow within this company I, you know you can look at it as like these these people who are telling you this, your boss, your manager, whoever that person might be, that person is being a mentor towards you. And I say that this is used in such um, in everyday life because of the fact that if you look around and you think about it, whenever you're getting feedback from a person, whether it's a teacher, a professor, your boss, your manager, anything like that, as a person, depending on how you're feeling inside about your worth ethic, you can always take it the right way or the wrong way. And it happens all the time. I, I remember a perfect example of when I had just graduated from school and I think it was like my one of my first real jobs. And I was working retail, I'm not ashamed of it. But while I was working there, my manager always, you know, would say, you know, I just wanna be a mentor to you and I just wanna do, you know, I just wanna help you grow as a person. And when she gave me my feedback on the different things I was doing within the store and within the company, you know, there were always, you could always take them negatively. She was always pointing out my flaws of what I can do better. I wasn't selling enough credit cards. I, I wasn't, 
you know, managing the team to get the store cleaned on time. So in it made me stay later to fix it up to make sure it was up to standards. And that's not how we're supposed to do things. We're supposed to do it by, you know, specific ways. However, when my assistant manager would tell me things, she had her own way of saying it. You know, she used certain words to kind of comfort me to, you know, to build me up and just say, hey, listen, I get it. Sometimes we don't always hit our mark. However, maybe we can try these different ways or maybe we can try to coach, you know, the person who we're selling our credit cards to and just help them understand how this is really going to benefit them. Both people who would both say that they were my mentors used both different tactics, words, strategy in order to relay their message that they wanted to get across to me. Now, it all just depends on how I took it. And I think it always deals with the type of tone that you use, the type of wording that you use. And it also plays into body language as well, because, you know, if you see a person that's tense and tight and, you know, and they're kind of just lashing out in the tone that they use, you kind of, you can take it as being something that's going to oppress you. But if it's, you know, very nurturing or, you know, sincere and engaging, you can take it as something as being, okay, they're just trying to build me up. They just want me to do better for myself. And you can take it as constructive criticism. Now, personally, I didn't get offended by anything that anyone said to me because at the end of the day, it all comes back to self-image. It all comes back to how I feel about how I'm doing in my job and how I take it. I'm a pretty strong person. I have pretty tough skin. So I take everything as constructive criticism and use it to make myself and my abilities better each day. Okay, guys, that brings us to the end of chapter four, the message. If I didn't name one of the 15 theories that you wanted to go over, please, please, please leave me a message. We can talk about it. You guys know how to find me. I've left a tab up at the top of the website where you can sit down and you can leave me a message. We can chat about it. We can talk about it. I just wanted to talk about and express the ones that kind of stood out for me this chapter. But hey, guys, if you want to talk about it, you want to discuss it a little bit more, go ahead, send me a message. I would love to chat with you.